This is Mo Lotman, and you're listening to the Techno Skeptic Podcast. My guest today is Danielle Allen, professor of government and the director of the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard University. She's a big thinker on issues of social science, political theory, democracy, citizenship, and education, some of which she writes about in a regular column for the Washington Post. She's also a principal investigator at Project Zero, which aims to study and improve education in the arts. In her very accomplished yet still young career, she's received two PhDs, taught at the University of Chicago and Princeton, won a MacArthur Fellowship, and served on the Pulitzer Prize Board. She's also written five books, including most recently, Education and Equality. Professor Allen, thank you so much for joining me. Glad to be here, Mo. Thanks for having me. It is absolutely my pleasure. As I was mentioning to you earlier, I caught you at this book talk and wanted to have you on because you speak so eloquently about what I think may be missing from our conversation about education in this country, which seems often to center on preparedness for participating in a global economy. So I wanted to start with what's actually going on in public schools today? Oh, wow. That's a big question. Well, I think everybody is clear on the fact that the rate of testing has increased significantly, and that's affecting students' experience. People are probably somewhat less aware of the fact that there's been a diminishment in the amount of time spent on social studies and history. No Child Left Behind established testing standards in English language arts and math, and the Common Core State Standards have also focused in precisely those two areas, English language arts and math. What you test is what you spend time on, and because um, social studies and history aren't part of the testing standards, uh, there's just been less time spent on them. So sadly, we see, I think, um, a reduction in the quality of our humanities and social sciences education in particular. And what's the impact of that, do you think? I think it's huge along a number of dimensions. Nearly every state constitution has a right to education in it, and if you look at the legislative history, it's quite common that that right to education is explained as necessary in order to prepare citizens for their responsibilities. So if you think about that, so there's a right to education, and the point of that right to education is to be to prepare to be a citizen. Then you have to ask yourself the question, well, what kind of education actually equips us for our role as citizens? The answer is pretty obvious. It's history and social studies, which means if you're not doing that, when we're not equipping ourselves for our citizenly responsibilities, I think that's what's at stake. That's a great summation. I'm going to mention something which I'm sure you've thought a lot about, which is that the Department of Education under President Obama created this so-called college scorecard, which ranks schools by what Obama has called, I'm quoting, bang for the buck. Mm-hmm. And um, some others call return on investment. So they're, they're comparing average salaries of graduates from particular institutions to their tuition costs. Uh, what do you think about that? So I appreciate the motivation to develop the college scorecard. There has been great frustration with insufficient transparency from colleges about their value, and I think that frustration is real and justified. So I think one aspect of the college scorecard is very good. It focuses people on the concept of what we in academe call uh, net tuition. It's a clunky phrase, but basically it means the sticker price, the tuition price, is not the amount that most people pay. 
So in order to think about access in college, you have to know how much you pay after financial aid. And that figure has been hard for families to come by. The college scorecard makes that very visible. So then the second part of the proposition is once you can actually see what the the real price is for a family, how can a family know what value they're getting out of that education? That's where I do think the college scorecard falls down. So the simple fact of the matter is the easiest way people have for thinking about value these days is the amount of money you make in your career. This is a regrettably short-sighted view of value and the value that comes from education. From my point of view, education is valuable along three dimensions. I call them the existential dimension, the vocational dimension, and the civic dimension. And it should prepare us for all three things. That is, it should um, help us um, develop as people. That's the existential component. Be the kinds of people we want to be and live good lives. Um, Obviously, we need to develop for vocational preparation so that we're ready to work, earn our own living, not depend on others, not exploit others in the process of earning our own living. And then we need civic preparation. And so the true value of an education depends on how well a school is doing along all three dimensions. At this point, we're only thinking about the second one, the vocational component. And as I said, that's a, it's a constricted focus and a short-sighted focus. Right. And if that's a change, and I'm, I'm not sure if it is or not, but if that's been a change, what do you think caused that? Um, it has been a change, and it's a pretty straightforward answer. So it's been um, several decades in the making of changes in policymaking and changes in particular in the role of the discipline of economics in our public landscape. So basically, there are two different phases of the policymaking shift. First of all, there was the competition between the U.S. and the Soviet Union around science and technology. So the Soviet Union launched Sputnik. That made us worry that we are falling behind um, in intellectual and scientific terms. And so we began to invest really heavily in science and technology education. Then you have a second uh, phase when in the 1980s, um, around the globe, you begin to see um, a dramatic increase in income inequality, especially in Western developed countries. And, of course, it's the job of economists to explain this. And they came up with the argument that this was a result of what they call skill-biased technological change. And what that means is, um, as economies became increasingly technology-dependent, in order to succeed in an economy, you needed a higher degree of technological skills. And the rewards of the economy went to those with greater degrees of technological skills. So... And there is what's called a wage premium that appears on college education. That is, people with a college degree end up earning increasingly more than people without a college degree. And you see the sort of spread in the income distribution that we all now know about. So then the economists have the job of solving that problem. And their answer, their solution is, well, then we need to spread technological skills more widely throughout the population in order to reduce that wage premium, close the gap, and make sure the gains of a technologically dependent economy are, are more equitably spread. There's truth to that. We do need to disseminate those skills more broadly. It's not the whole story, but they have been so influential that that's become the reigning paradigm. And so educational policy has focused on that dissemination of technological skills. Yes. And I. this is exactly the intersection of our two interests, I think. And yeah. I was speaking with Kentaro Toyama, who's the author of Geek Heresy. He was the guest for one of my other podcasts. And his take on things is that technology acts more as a jack widening disparities than it does to equalize disparities. And part of that, I think, for him stems from the idea that the people who are most readily able to make use of technologies are the people that already have all the advantages. And so that actually adding more technology, while you might think would equalize, actually tends to make, can make things worse. Right. 
I mean, I think there's certainly um, the, the historical pattern of the last couple of decades would point in that direction. Although I think there's also probably a kind of, um, you know, sort of a dynamic system where you sort of push in one direction and you do end up with these accretions of elite power around technological expertise. But the result of that, uh, in the ideal, is that um, a big pushback in the other direction to democratize education, democratize skills. And so you can see moments in history where there has been a sort of democratization of education and skill, um, and then those new technologies get assimilated and, and more broadly spread around. So I don't think there's anything that's not a sort of deterministic situation right. in the relationship between technology and inequality. Um, but I do think that um, democratizing education is something that requires constant commitment, um, constant vigilance. And in the absence of that kind of commitment and vigilance, I do think technology um, will uh, is more likely to have um, an inegalitarian consequence. Right. Well, the thing about technology is that it keeps changing constantly. Mm-hmm. And so, and the faster it changes, you could argue the more difficult it is to keep up. That's do you, right. Do you think that's a concern? Well, I mean, so this goes to the heart of what one of the long-standing arguments about um, a sort of humanistic or liberal arts education is about, right? That is, um, what human beings need is development of those capacities that permit them to be lifelong learners, to continue adapting and that sort of thing. They don't need training on a specific software program, which will be obsolete in 7.5 months, right? <laughs> right? They need rather sort of basic skills about reading, about how to learn, what are the strategies that they as a learner need in order to be able to move quickly in picking up new uh, bodies of knowledge and new skills. And those capacities, um, I think the liberal arts have shown themselves to be quite durable um, as a training ground for those capacities. So um, at any rate, so that, that is, I think, one of the core arguments for the, the humanistic, the text-based, the reading-based, the critical thinking-based uh, component of the educational system. You use a phrase, I, you're probably not going to pronounce <laughs> this right, but eudaimonistic human flourishing. Did I yeah. say that right? More or less, okay. yep. <laughs> Why don't you um, explain what that is? Sure. So the phrase eudaimonistic human flourishing comes from the Greek word eudaimonia, um, and the conventional translation is happiness. The literal etymology of the word um, is that you've got um, sort of a good spirit riding along on your shoulder, so to speak. So I like that image. Um, daimon is a sort of Greek word for a sort of spirit or a divinity or a god, and eu means good or well. So it means you, you've, you're blessed. You've got a good spirit traveling with you. And so as philosophers developed the concept of eudaimonia and happiness, they tended to focus on the question of um, what was a life worth living? And they answer that question in some sense by saying, well, a life worth living is one where, you know, in that final moment at the very end, you can look back and say, I had a life well lived. And that leads to a very full picture of what counts, what's valuable. It's not just about how much money you made, right? It's about your family and the quality of your relationships and the quality of your community and whether you assisted those things or in some sense harmed them. You know, you don't want to look back and feel guilty or feel ashamed or feel regretful. So the question is, um, what role does education play toward that? To some extent, education should unleash it itself. It's not just about preparation. Education is about deploying our human capacities in that blossoming, flourishing sense. So school should be in itself already an experience of flourishing. That should sort of be the first standard. 
And then the kind of flourishing that we experience in school should prepare us for that whole breadth of human flourishing across existential, vocational, and civic dimensions. The program continues right after this. Thanks for listening to the Technoskeptic Podcast. If you like what you hear, please share or subscribe at technoskeptic.substack.com. We've got a lot of great content looking at the impact of technology on society. We cover a wide range of issues like privacy, economics, cognition, synthetic biology, artificial intelligence, and a whole lot more. If you have comments or want to contribute an article to the Technoskeptic, email us at technoskeptic at substack.com. And now, back to the show. I think you said humanism is the unlikely hero in your story. Right. Maybe you can explain that further. Sure. Um, So... I mean, there are a couple of different dimensions to that. Um, one comes back to the issue of preparing ourselves for civic participation, um, participatory readiness for our broad society, not just for the economy. And in that, um, it's interesting that you sort of study of civic education is one of those areas where we've done less well at understanding value and understanding the things that Um, the kinds of education that do prepare citizens. But to the degree that we can pick up data fragments, it's clear that um, an education in the humanities and social sciences um, leads to people who are more likely to participate in the political arena. They feel more comfortable working with language. Politics is an activity of language. It's about words. It's about arguments. It's about texts and so forth. Um, And without a high comfort level with those materials, it's very hard for people to access the world of politics. Um, So the humanities and social sciences um, end up becoming necessary if you start to focus on civic education. And so rebuilding space for them becomes necessary. That's one half of it. I mean, I think the second half um, of my argument is that I, I try in my book to shift the focus of the conversation about education and equality from merely being a conversation about the distribution of material goods. That distribution Good. matters, obviously. Right. It's not that it's irrelevant, but the issue of equality is a much bigger one than that. And so for me, um, the project of equality is about human empowerment. Right. It's about building societies where everybody is a political equal to others and participates in political institutions, but also lives as an empowered individual, takes responsibility for their communities, um, is a co-author of the, the culture and the norms and so forth of their community. And when you have that goal for human flourishing then you really have to think about education along, again, all three dimensions, not just the vocational, but also the existential and the civic. And that whole package is a package, I think, that the best name for it is humanism. Mm -hmm. It's about the whole human being, whole human flourishing. Um, And so that's what I've tried to put at the focus of my own thinking about education policy. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And one of your points in your book was that you found some correlation, in fact, between the STEM majors, a negative correlation That's between right. the STEM majors and sort of civic engagement or That's civic right. empowerment. So I, it's not, so it's, this is data from a political scientist at Duke named Sunshine Hilligus. So I draw on her data. I can't claim to have found these okay, correlations myself, enough. but yes, uh, she did find these correlations. And 
So this is a very interesting area, I think. And um, the temptation, and it's one to which I've succumbed periodically, is to fall into a kind of um, either-or picture, right? You know, STEM, bad, humanities and social sciences, good. You know, let's do more of the second one. I think that's a mistake. So I do think that the um, approach we should take is a both-and approach. Mm-hmm. We obviously need sciences and we STEM education and technology education, and we obviously need um, humanities and social sciences education. For me, I think the question of um, now pressing interest is one of, um, honestly, how to reinvent science education. Okay. That is, it doesn't seem to me as a purely abstract matter or matter of principle that it should be necessary that science education pull in the opposite direction from civic participation. Right, okay. It's hard for me to just, like, take that as given and leave it there. That makes me want to ask questions about the nature of our science education. Is there a way in which we are conducting that education that makes students in those spaces less interested in civic participation? Should we rethink our approach to science education so that being a good scientist, having those skills, um, is aligned with, harmonizes with, supports growth in civic interest and civic skills? I kind of think that may be one of the most important things we should be thinking about. Are you a fan of John Dewey? I am. <laughs> yes, I am. That's no, true. And he did, uh, I mean, you, you say more, but I mean, he, he was great at thinking about science as completely embedded with all of our other intellectual endeavors. Yeah, I, I don't want to falsely give the impression I'm any kind of expert on John Dewey, but he's one of the sort of f- foremost education philosophers, I would say, of yep. the 20th, even 19th partially century. Yep. And um I, I know I know just a little, but uh, but my understanding is that he was interested in sort of cultivating the whole individual, and that education was a microcosm of society. That's that, right. That education is is essentially about being a social being. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and so science is never something that lives separate from all other human endeavors. It is itself an outgrowth of the world of human culture, the world of human sense-making, the world of human belief and commitments. And so um, to conduct um, good science requires understanding the relationship between the scientific enterprise and those other parts of the human enterprise. Um, So yes, I think we could probably stand to think about integrating a few more Dewey-in principles or perspectives in our approach to science education these days. So... How would you do that? I guess is the big is the big question. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so I am director of the M and J Safra Center for Ethics, and we are currently working on a collaboration with the general education program here at Harvard to revamp some of the core general ed classes, especially those that are in ethical reasoning. And we're just at the very beginning stages of trying to lay out where our focus will be, but. We are interested in um, building a course around the ethics of artificial intelligence. Oh, great. Um, That's awesome. And so I think, I mean, the answer to the question has to be sort of in practice, working it through. So we need to find our colleagues in engineering and find our colleagues in the natural sciences. And in the first instance, talk about collaborative courses like these, courses that bring the humanities and the social sciences together. And then I think the challenge would be um, whether it's possible to build a second conversation on top of that where people who are responsible for science education itself um, in a more pure form um, perhaps 
um, you know, deepen their understanding of the humanistic side of the equation, and we might explore together um, where we could see opportunities for strengthening um, science education insofar as it has the potential to contribute to civic education. Uh, one of the things that I'm interested in is the the way that the focus on STEM education might be pushing people away from thinking about education in a more holistic way like mm-hmm. you're describing. I, I think there's nothing wrong with studying the sciences either. I think it's great. But it's interesting that the state would take an interest in pushing particular subjects. Right. Do you, do you find that to be problematic or are you okay with that? Well, I'm certainly arguing for a rebalancing in the state's own priorities. So I think a state, a democratic state specifically, that doesn't pay attention to civic education is failing in its core responsibilities. (laughs) I mean, we're supposed to be trying to maintain ourselves as a democracy over time, which ought to mean that we're investing in educating people about the concept of democracy, institutional structure, core components, and so forth. It, It seems to me pretty rudimentary. So yeah, so I, as a somebody who writes about educational policy, am an advocate for a rebalancing of our priorities. That said, um, it's a twofold problem. Mm-hmm. There is the pressing need for education in STEM, and we simply need to acknowledge that need. Um, and so, you know, the rebalancing means finding more time in the classroom. Right? It, it doesn't mean getting rid of STEM. It means lengthening the time of the school day so that we can do humanities and social sciences. But the second part of the problem is this. So when the governors of the 50 states in the National Governors Association um, set about to develop the Common Core state standards, they aspired to developing standards in three areas, not just English language arts and math and science, but also social studies and history. And I put the emphasis on the governors because, of course, it's easy for people to forget that the Common Core state standards were a state effort, not an effort on the part of the federal government. It's a state effort. And they wanted standards in three areas. And they set up commissions to work on these standards, and those commissions did their work. But with the social studies and history standards, the um, political polarization of the country is so great that it was impossible for people to come to agreement around standards. Hmm. So that third tier was nixed. Just entirely? Entirely. It exists. The work was done, but it could never be moved through to something that the governors and the National Governors Association could vote on um, and agree as their shared project. So in other words, our problem is not just the intense pressure of global economic competition around issues of technology. It's also our domestic challenges around polarization. Right. Um, so that, too, has weakened the humanistic side of our educational system. Is there no bipartisan or multipartisan view of what good citizenship is? Not right now. <laughs> <laughs> there is not. And I think uh, this is a sad thing, and we are in desperate need of some bipartisan, multipartisan conversations that attempt to rescue the concept of civic education. What, what do you think could be some basic kernels that might have wide acceptance or appeal 
Wow. I mean, I think the easiest thing to do is to start with the basics, um, which are simply part of the shared patrimony of all of us. So I take the Declaration of Independence, and that way I take the Constitution. You can pull out key texts, as actually the English Language Corps does, uh, the Gettysburg Address, Martin Luther King's uh, letter from a Birmingham jail. There's nobody who disputes that those are important parts of our patrimony. And you can build a heck of a lot of civic education just out of those beginning components. So I think that's where you start. You start with the stuff that every, nobody wants to throw out, everybody wants to keep, right. see what you can build. Once you've done that, maybe you can build something else on top of it. Right. But it's more than just learning about what might have happened in the past. I think it's also, I think you would argue or have argued that it's also about people being engaged in the political process or being engaged in their communities. Absolutely. And how do you how do you foster that? So again, this is where you know I'm I have to admit I'm a bit of a one note Nelly on this subject <laughs> because I think you could pretty much get just about all of this out of the Declaration of Independence. Okay. And it's this short text, one thousand three hundred and thirty seven words. It's a brilliant window into the history of the country. It's philosophically coherent and important. It's also a primer on um, civic engagement and participation in your community. Um, its basic structure is a group of people diagnose their situation when in the course of human events. They decide on a course of action. They're going to separate from Britain. They expect that they have to justify themselves. They say that they need to declare their reasons to a candid world. Um, and they provide that justification. So it's also um, an example of eloquence and argumentation. And the second sentence of the Declaration, actually, in particular, um, is a to-do list for anybody who wants to think about what it means to get involved in politics, that you have the job of understanding how principles and the form that the powers of government are given combine to achieve collective safety and happiness. Um, I can go on and on about (laughs) the subject, so you don't want me to, um, but the point is just that text was the result of lots of groups of people all over the colonies in different contexts talking amongst themselves, diagnosing their circumstances, trying to identify a solution, clarifying their justifications, and making the case for their justifications to others. That's it. That's the basic stuff of democratic citizenship. Fair enough. Um, I noticed that you have a background in classics, and Mm. you seem to like to pull on these... uh, well, the Declaration of Independence isn't ancient, but it's He's a couple hundred. He's starting to feel that way. <laughs> yeah, starting to feel that way. It's a couple hundred years old, and of course, um, the stuff that you would have studied would, would have been far older. And I think you recently wrote an, a piece about Cicero mm-hmm. um, and appreciating the qualities of self-mastery and stoic equilibrium, as you put it. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of shifting gears here a little, but... Um, it seems like a lot of our digital tools, including iPads, which are now widely distributed in educational contexts, reward and reinforce more impulsive behaviors. Hmm. Um, Interesting. There's a there's this psychologist Nicholas Cardaris who wrote a book called Glow Kids, hmm. who examined the influence psychologically on things, and he called these things digital heroin. Um, and some of his studies link interactive screen use to ADHD, aggression, mood disorders, et cetera. So I'm, I'm wondering if you're concerned at all that some of these technologies might actually be getting in the way of this type of education. Mm-hmm. 
So that's a great question, um, and thank you. And I'm going to want that reference, so sure. if you can share it with me. Um, so yes, I mean, I um, I'm an advocate of slow reading, which means take really good texts and read them really slowly, read them out loud, talk through individual sentences, understand their structure so that you understand their logic. What's the logic of language doing? That you understand their metaphors, that you understand the overall construction of the argument of a text. I'm an advocate for doing this because language and thought are very closely linked to one another. I mean, the Greek word was just one logos, right? Which we get logic from that. It means language. It means thought. They're the same thing. Right. In antiquity, they were understood as the same thing. They are the same thing, language and thought. So... If you want to build up your thought muscles, build up your brain in the same way that an athlete builds up their physical muscles, you've got to do brain exercises. And slow reading is one of the most powerful brain exercises there is. And so I do have a great deal of concern that um, the way technology operates uh, is pushing us all away from slow reading um, so that you know, we have trouble sustaining attention over a stretch of text. Um, we are bombarded with um, multiple pathways through text. You know, there's, you, you might be starting to read a paragraph, but there's a hyperlink here, and it takes you someplace else, or there's an image there or an audio piece. Right. All of those things have their own benefits and their own values, but without a kind of underlying uh, capacity to follow a stretch of an argument, I think that they do um, block the development of that capacity. Yep. Um, I'll mention something completely different, which is I have this one friend who's in uh, this uh, low-income school district in Holyoke, Massachusetts, and um, what she's seeing is, and this I think gets back to your your book is called Education and, and Equality, mm-hmm. um, and she's seeing what she's calling the school-to-prison pipeline, right? which I'm sure you've heard that horrible phrase, but she's seeing discrimination within the school whereby certain people are getting punished unfairly Mm -hmm. based on race or class, and other people are getting rewarded unfairly by the same measure. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that, and what is the solution Sure. Um, This is another huge topic. Sorry. (laughs) That's all right. So you should check out the Department of Education has statistics on school discipline that go all the way into preschool and um, a stunning disciplinary disparity across race exists even for pre-K students. Wow. Um, They are simply, from my point of view, the most shocking statistics in all of the body of American data. So they're worth, I mean, if you can find them easily on the Department of Education website. I mean, school to prison pipeline is not new. It's been under construction for several decades. Um, so for whatever it's worth, I have a book coming out in the fall, actually, which is more or less about that. I mean, it's oh. not a scholarly book. It's a, it's a memoir. It's a personal What's the story title? about a cousin. It's called Cuz. It's about a baby cousin um, who would be an example of somebody who passed through the school to prison pipeline. Okay. Um, we'll look for that one. When is it coming out? Uh, September. Okay. In terms of uh, what to do about it, um, all right, you asked, so I'll tell you my answer. <laughs> uh, we need to legalize marijuana and decriminalize harder drugs and adopt a harm reduction approach to drug control, such as Portugal uses. 
And the reason we need to do this is because the entire uh, criminal justice system is overgrown, and its excessive overgrowth has pulled other institutions into its orbit. And that has a lot to do with why educational systems approach discipline in the way that they do. And it also has to do with um, the how we allocate public resources that we 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 do we ad- allocate tons of public resources to criminal justice and so but not to schools and not to say special needs issues or not to mental health. So what does a school do when it's got a problem with a kid? And there aren't any resources in the mental health space, and there are resources in the criminal justice space. It's kind of obvious right. why kids get directed in the direction where there are resources. Hmm. Wow. It doesn't have to be permanent. It is actually something that we built, and therefore we can unbuild it. Yeah. Have to do the work, but it's within the realm of the humanly possible. Right. But to do that work, we've... I guess this gets back to the civic education piece. We need to find a way to get people engaged and active yep and we have to spread the understanding and the knowledge and to understand the what the, everything i just explained about uh, you know mass incarceration criminal justice school discipline requires that one understand the fact that there are budgets allocated by states and that those budgets are constrained and they're constrained by the amount of taxes that the state can take in and Taxation is constrained by the macroeconomy as well as by political commitments. And so if you want to change the budget allocations, you have to either change the pool of taxable resources, which means changing the macroeconomy or political commitments, or you have to change people's priorities within the state budget with regard to what they're going to spend their money on. And then that means you have to understand why people care about what they care about. That's the stuff you have to understand to be a participant in civic life. And you don't get that in STEM classes. I think that's a beautiful place to stop. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you so much, Professor Allen. Great to have you. Glad to meet you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Technoskeptic Podcast. One last thing before we go. I'd like to ask listeners to please go to whatever podcast app you use and put a review there for the Technoskeptic Magazine podcast. When the Technoskeptic switched from WordPress to Substack, our podcast feed also changed, so all our previous reviews went away. We'd really appreciate it if you help us catch back up to where we were and leave us a nice review. Thanks.